the cross? That is the question we asked this morning from John chapter 19, verses 17 to 24. Now, when we study the cross, there are many challenges, but there are very varying degrees of importance of those challenges. But there are two important ones that I think need to be addressed. Firstly, the personal. Uh, You see that as the impact on the cross on us, that's what I mean by personal, because it's the significance of the cross starts to wear off on those of us who have been Christians for a long time. That is a real shame and it is an unfortunate reality that, uh, as they say, familiarity tends to breed contempt. Yet, nothing in all of Scripture should be closer to our hearts because what you believe about the cross also defines what you believe about the man who died on it. You get that? Secondly, in the realm of theological discussion, the doctrine of the cross has been the subject of controversy for thousands of years. There doesn't seem to much disagreement historically as to how it happened because it is attested even by secular historians. What has been challenged, however, as to the why and what actually happened on the cross. And the main aspect of it, of course, is the idea of the substitutionary atonement, the substitutionary sacrifice. And in modern times, it has become unbelievable. In in fact, people today find it hard to actually believe Modern minds struggle to, struggle to understand the need for it, for there to be an atonement. So the Bible's presentation of the work of Jesus Christ as a substitute, dying to appease the wrath of God in the place of sinners, has been dismissed as distasteful, even sub-Christian. A, um, a Baptist pastor, Steve Chalk, um, in the UK, yeah, a colleague, if, you, if I can call him that, um, he called the idea of substitutionary death, Christ in our place, this is a form of cosmic child abuse that no sane Christian could ever possibly hope to believe. There are many, there are many like him. Of course, we need, therefore, to come back to the doctrine of the cross. Because in the past, it was simply enough to simply declare a truth and that people would know very quickly what, uh, if, if, it, if it differs from the truth. But now we actually have to point out and say that this is wrong because this is not exactly, and, and, it, and it is simply a, a uh, you, you sway or you go out of the truth by minuscule degrees and you're already missing the mark. This is the problem. Because, because if, if 
If something was black and white, as the statement that Steve Chalk made, then you could say, well, this is wrong. But he didn't get there simply, bang, one morning woke up and, you know, and declared that. It's actually by degrees. You stray, you stray, and suddenly you find out a long way out. That's why we need to be careful. Of course, the common person on the street uh, doesn't really want to get into the deeper significance of the cross. This is why Oswald Chambers uh, once said, all heaven is interested in the cross of Christ, all hell is terribly afraid of it, while men are the only beings who more or less ignore its meaning. End of quote. Now let's look at why the cross, why the, the symbol of the cross. You see, every religion and ideology has some form of symbol which illustrates a significant feature of its history or belief, something that encapsulates everything about it. For Buddhists, it's the lotus flower because it encapsulates something that we spoke about in our mini-series, the circle of life. For the Jews, it is the star of David. For Islam, it is the crescent moon and the five-pointed star. For the communists, it is the hammer and sickle. Christianity is no exception as the cross is now and has been for thousands of years the universal symbol of our faith. So much so that ever since the Roman Empire became Christian about 325 AD, it has been even respectable to wear a cross. This doesn't mean that the people who wear the cross or even have the cross tattooed on them actually understand its meaning and implications of why it is so. Now, it hasn't always, this, this air of respectability hasn't always been around because it had a shameful association with the execution of a common well. If we could say what it would be like today, well, it'd be like walking around with a, with a noose around your neck. A hangman's noose, that is, or an electric chair, or a, a syringe with a lethal thing inside of it, a lethal dose, or... That's an instrument of, of death. It's, it's not something very pretty. Why the cross? In commemorating Jesus, Christians didn't want to emphasise his birth nor his youth. They didn't emphasise his teaching nor his service, neither his resurrection nor his reign. Even though these are all very important part of our faith. What these early Christians wanted to do was remember his death by crucifixion. And historically, they started to use the cross as a symbol of their faith from about the second century onwards. An empty cross. The crucifix, uh, those of you who are Catholic understand what the crucifix is, it's the Jesus on the cross. That's the crucifix. And that didn't really 
start until about the, the 5th or 6th century. Now the choice of a cross was a symbol of their faith when we remember the horror with which it's a symbol of their faith and our faith when we remember the horror with which crucifixion was regarded in the ancient world. Now crucifixion as a form of, of, of killing somebody or murdering somebody was invented by the barbarians, uh, by the barbarians even way before the Romans, the Greeks and the Romans adopted it as a, as a form of execution. It is probably the most, the most cruel method of execution ever invented by mankind. Why? Because, because it was gruesome and it delayed death. You wish you could die, but it delayed death. It was until the, the way, way back. And, and somebody could be hanging there on the tree, on, on the, the Jews call it the tree, um, it's cross, for days. Hanging there, just waiting to die. And vultures and other birds will come and start picking at your eyes and all of that stuff. It was absolutely horrible. People walking past. This was an everyday event. You came to the city and there would be somebody there hanging on the cross. At least we have to thank God that society has moved on since then, or so we hope. And it was reserved for the most hardened of criminals, like Barabbas that we spoke about a couple of weeks ago. And Barabbas was the one who took his place. For this reason, Roman citizens were exempt from crucifixion, except for the most extreme cases of treason. But in spite, in spite of all of this, in spite of the persecution and the ridicule that the early Christians suffered, they refused to discard the symbol of the cross. And even though it was something demeaning, it was shameful, they refused to discard it. And it was out of loyalty to their saviour that they embraced the sign because he, their saviour, died on it. And even as they greeted each other, they would give each other the symbol of the cross to identify as Christians. So why the cross after that introduction? Let's get into our passage. Why the cross? In verses 16 to 18, because he carried it. He carried it. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus and carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. We covered the past couple of weeks, the fast that was the, uh, the trial. And Pilate, Pilate after all that, uh, finally gave the Jews what they wanted to crucify Jesus. And it was common to have the, the, vic- the, the victim 
the one to be crucified, to carry the crossbeam, just the crossbeam, not the whole cross, just the crossbeam on their shoulders to the place of crucifixion. And the upright was already in place. Now that place was Golgotha, which in, in Hebrew or in, in Latin it is where we get the word Calvary. That is a Latin word. Now we have already highlighted John's unique description of the crucifixion. And John, for example, says nothing about some a character that uh, the other Gospels name and that his name was Simon of Cyrene. Simon of Cyrene was picked out of the crowd to carry, to help Jesus with the cross because after all the beating that he received, he was really struggling. You could understand that. Where was Cyrene? If, John, if Simon was from Cyrene, where was it? Well, Cyrene is in present-day Libya on the other side of the Mediterranean, present-day Libya. So what was he doing there? He was there for the Passover feast. It's interesting that the Gospel of Mark actually mentions his two sons, Alexander and Rufus. And they're they're actually named in the Gospels because they must have been part of the early church. They were believers. And both sons, no doubt, would have been very proud as they told the story of the cross and how their own father, how their own family was involved in such a crucial event as it is the crucifixion. And now his family were the first to literally carry the cross of Christ. You know where the name Christopher comes from? Christophoros is, is the actual Christ. Pharos means carry. So the name Christopher meant carrying, carrying Christ or carrying the cross of Christ. Now Jesus had told, remember the words of Jesus when he said to his disciples, Matthew 16, 24, he said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Carrying, bearing the cross of Christ, even before the event, Jesus was already telling his followers, his disciples, if you want to follow me, this is what it's going to involve. For many of the early Christians, these words were not merely symbolic. but they actually had a literal reality attached to them. For many of them, they had to suffer in the same way that Christ did. They were crucified, they were hung outside because of their faith. As each succeeding persecution happened, they were killed in many different ways. For this reason, Spurgeon said, there are no crown wearers in heaven who were not cross-bearers here below. There are no crown-wearers in heaven who were not cross-bearers here below. Let me ask you, if you call yourself a Christian, how is the cross-bearing going? Do you count it a privilege? Are you proud? Are you ashamed? Are you willing? Are you reluctantly carrying it? How's it going? 
Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. That is a topic, a sermon for another opportunity. Why the cross? Because he, Jesus, was crucified on it. Verse 18. And there they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. The Apostle John, of course, in his Gospel has been preparing us all along for this event. It's building up to this. Yet, when it comes to the actual description of the crucifixion, he is amazingly brief. He doesn't go into the detail. And and people in the ancient world would... I suppose, wouldn't need a description of what happened. Everybody knew what happened when somebody was crucified. They were common. They used crosses and, and sometimes in the shape of an X like that and sometimes in the shape of a T. And it's interesting that we, we know it was the shape of a T uh, because there was a sign attached to the top of it and, and, the, and uh, Matthew tells us that the sign was above Jesus' head. So that's why we, we assume that it was a T. Needless to say, the Romans did what they could to make crucifixions as gruesome and public so it served as a deterrence for anybody who had the same ideas. Don't stand up against the empire. Yet in the gospel, in the gospel, the language of exaltation, in the gospel of John especially, the language of exaltation comes through. Remember what Jesus told Nicodemus who came at night to inquire about with Jesus. In chapter 3 verse 14, Jesus said, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That is the language of exaltation. Then in chapter 12, Jesus said, And when I am lifted up from Tushif, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. Yes, lifted up, hoisted up on a cross next to a public road where people came and went, lifted up then in a time, in a place and lifted up for the rest of history until the day that he returns. Lifted up. Sadly, over the years, the church has somewhat reinterpreted the whole exaltation to mean magnificent cathedrals with spires and bells and whistles and gold. Somewhere along there was, a, there was a sign that said to the glory of God when many of the times you, you go and visit some of these great cathedrals and you say, well, it's actually more to the glory of man and the people who painted it or who put the work there or who designed it, which is a shame. It, because the, the, these churches are meant to impress you with their grandeur and absolutely magnificent. I mean, some of you have been to some of these great cathedrals around the world. You cannot help but feel small and overwhelmed by it all. 
Yet the cross of Christ was was different. Isaiah says, like one from whom people hide their faces. You couldn't, you just couldn't look at it. You couldn't even, you weren't there to take pictures to admire the architecture or the grandeur. People were hiding their faces. They just couldn't look at and, and just contemplate what was happening there. They were beating their chests. This is why someone rightly said Jesus was crucified not in a cathedral between two candles but on a cross between two thieves. Sort of brings it down to earth, doesn't it? Let's hope we never forget that. Why the cross? Verses 19 to 22. His title was on it. His title was on it. Verse 19. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross. It read, many of the Jews, uh, many of the Jews read this sign for the place Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews and Pilate answered, what I have written. And what was written? Seems to be missing the words there. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. That was written. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. So it was customary for the, for the charge for which the the person was crucified, that, that charge was, was put there. Well, here there wasn't a charge, there was, there was a title. And saying that Jesus came from Nazareth focuses on his humble humanity. What good can come from <laughs> Nazareth, right? His humble humanity while giving him the title king, speaks of his grandeur, his royalty. Of course, it was meant as an insult to the Jews. So they protest and they come to Pilate and say, please change it. It's it's insulting. But somehow, Pilate suddenly finds his courage that was lacking during the whole process before. He finds his courage and he says, what I've written, I've written. It's going to stay like that way. I suppose it just goes to highlight, well, now that the trial is over, they got what they wanted, he's finally standing up to them. He found his spine and uh, it just, I suppose, goes to show what a weak, pathetic leader he was. Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a psalm of David and we know very well that that was a messianic psalm. It, It really... Through and through, it's about Jesus. But it was also about David and what he went through. And it was a, Psalm 22 is a psalm of David and, he, as, and, and in his role as a, as a righteous sufferer. And the title above Jesus' head is proclaiming him to be the king of the Jews. And John sees it as replicating the pattern of the greatest king in Israel's past, King David, the greatest king. 
Yet even David, in his suffering, he was pointing to someone, one of his descendants. He was pointing to Messiah, who suffers. Yet, none of the religious leaders who should have known better could connect one with the other. If King David suffered like this, well, his descendant who was much, much greater than he, look at what he had to suffer. They couldn't make that connection. Now, the title is, is written in, in Greek, the language of art and music and philosophy. It was the common language of the empire. It was written in Latin, the legal, formal language of the empire. And it was written in Aramaic, the, the native language that Jesus spoke. The Jewish world, the Greek world, the Latin world. For all the world to see who he was. His title over the cross is a, is a form of, of witness to Israel to the world. And yes, that Jesus doesn't just belong to the Jews. He's actually, Jesus belongs to the world. His witness, his sacrifice, his love, redemption is for the whole world, not just to his own, to the Jews. So by Pilate choosing the title, we have another irony, don't we? Uh, the man who previously said, you know, what is truth? He really couldn't care less about truth. In verse 38 of chapter 18, the man who doesn't care about truth unwittingly proclaims the greatest truth of all about Jesus. How? How is it that these people who didn't even know were going by God's perfect plan anyway? They didn't have a clue and yet they were fulfilling prophecy all along. And now, verses 23 to 24, why the cross? Because he was naked on it. And perhaps this is one of the ones that is, it's, it's a bit hard to, to fathom, a bit hard to imagine. This is what it says. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. They said to seamless, worm it in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. And this happened, that the scripture might be fulfilled, that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Normally, Normally the, the, the victim will be led totally naked to the place of crucifixion. Now it appears that Jesus' clothes were not taken from him until they arrived at Golgotha. And here he takes the last step down in his humiliation as Jesus' last garment is, is stripped from him. If you've seen a lot of the paintings by the, by the artists over the ages, the medieval and, and so on, they, they always, they, they can't even imagine having Jesus up there totally stark naked. They always paint him with a loincloth as he hangs 
and a cross. Yes, appalling as it is to think of it, our Saviour and Lord, the Maker of the heavens and the earth, our glorious Redeemer, was crucified totally naked on a cross. Somebody had given to him the undergarment. It was precious, it was probably very expensive, seamless. And when the soldiers see this, rather than rip it up, they cast lots as to who will get it. And unwittingly again, they are fulfilling prophecy, even as they do this. King David said this in Psalm 22, They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Verse 18. The fact that prophecy has been fulfilled simply, again, highlights God's sovereign control in everything. Back in Genesis, I always like to make these connections. Back in Genesis, the last thing that is said in the description before the fall is that Adam and Eve were naked and they were not ashamed. They had nothing to be embarrassed about. Sin had not yet entered the world. Clothing comes after the fall. And this is significant because on the cross, Jesus is going back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 3, 15 talks about Jesus. And he goes back to the beginning and he's going there as naked as Adam was in the Garden of Eden. But unlike Adam, he's covered with Adam and Eve's sin and he's covered with your sin and my sin. And folks, as we read in Psalm 32, the covering that we need, whose sins are covered, is the sin of the blood of the Lamb, is the, the perfect sacrifice of the blood of the Lamb covers our sins. If we try and cover ourselves, you know how we try to cover up things? It's always going to show up somewhere, isn't it? Just like Adam and Eve try to cover themselves up with fig leaves. All that we try and do is going to be inadequate. How we are to be covered is with Jesus and his perfect sacrifice. What are some of the lessons? Some implications as we conclude. First of all, I just want to say that there are many implications of this. This is so, the topic so big, but let me just give you three uh, off the cuff. First of all, in the words of John Stott, Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we need to see it as something done by us. You and I put Jesus on the cross. That means that we have to leave our pride and humble ourselves at the foot of the cross. Confess that we have sinned and deserve nothing at his hand but judgment. Then thank him that he loved us so and died for us and receive from him a full and free 
forgiveness. We put Jesus there. Secondly, Jesus' substitutionary death means that if you do trust him, you don't belong to you anymore. Why? Because you have been bought with a price. This is what Peter said, 1 Peter 1, 18-19. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. You don't live for you anymore because you don't own you anymore. It's not about you. You have been bought. You belong to him. You belong to Jesus. You are his. He has paid for you with his life. And therefore he, call, he calls you to be holy. Just as he is holy. He calls you to live for his glory. Thirdly, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but there is an underlying joy through it all. Yes, it, it is awful, it is horrible, you, it, you, you struggle to even look at and then think of being there and seeing all this stuff happen to your Saviour. All that he had to endure. But the passage is not depressing. In fact, it is impossible to read the whole of the New Testament without being impressed by the the atmosphere of joyful confidence which pervades it. It is everywhere. And and that stands out in, in, in stark relief against all that passes for superficial Christianity today. All the bells and the whistles and all that stuff that goes on. And we're still depressed. But here, here, there was no defeatism about the early Christians. They didn't go walking around as victims. They went around proclaiming the truth of Christ. They spoke of victory in Christ. And this is a good lesson for us today. Even as we face all these challenges as the world puts more and more pressures and taking away our freedoms as Christians. It's so easy to just go into our little corner and hide and get that card that I showed you last week, the one that I carry around, the victim card. The early Christians didn't, didn't use it. Let me uh, leave you with a poem before we take, we sing and take communion. I'll reveal, I'll reveal the name of the author at the end. A beautiful poem. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood, who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure never till my latest breath 
can I forget that look? It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did, but now my tears are vain. Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain. A second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I died that thou must live. Thus, while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace, it seals my pardon too. With pleasing grief and mournful joy my spirit now is filled, that I should such a life destroy, yet live by him I killed. John Newton the 18th century. Beautiful. All glory be to Christ. Let's sing.